0: The legacy of racial segregation as it relates to the COVID pandemic is that hypersegregated cities served as ground zero in terms of the mass spread of COVID-19 in America. If we didn't have American apartheid, if we didn't have racial segregation to that degree, it would have made it much harder for COVID to really pick up and spread in a mass kind of way.
1: That's Dr. Lawrence T. Brown, director of the Black Butterfly Project. Drawing on his many years of social science research, policy analysis, and archival material, Dr. Brown recently published his first book, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America. A fascinating look at the ongoing historical trauma caused by a combination of policies, practices, systems, and budgets, which are at the root of uprisings and crises in hyper-segregated cities around the country. But there's reason for hope, as Dr. Brown offers up a wide range of innovative solutions to help heal and restore redlined Black neighborhoods across this country. We also hear from Dr. Brian Smedley, co-founder and executive director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity, a project that connects research, policy analysis, and communications with on-the-ground activism to advance health equity. In this role, Dr. Smedley oversees several initiatives designed to improve opportunities for good health, for people of color, and undo the health consequences of racism. The way that healthcare
2: resources are distributed here in the U.S. is deeply inequitable. Often those communities that are sickest and in greatest need of access to healthcare services and culturally appropriate services in their communities simply don't have that access. So the big takeaway for me is that nations that cooperate together, that show a level of social cohesion and solidarity, will do much better in stopping the spread of the virus than those communities characterized by deep division, such as here in the United States.
1: I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World, I'm here with my co-hosts, Katherine Delson and Deepthi Pava. And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID, and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Welcome back, everybody, to Contact World So today we're going to hear from Dr. Lawrence T. Brown and Dr. Brian Smedley. Previously, we've talked about, you know, the political determinants of health and the way that politics have influenced public health. But it was interesting to learn how segregation in America has actually caused this proliferation of COVID-19. It makes a lot of sense that we're in the position we're in because things that affect marginalized communities affect everyone. And it was interesting, the intersection between these two conversations, because on one hand, we don't have data because we've been trying to ignore the data, right? We've been trying to sweep it under a rug because our country has an absolute history of racial segregation, and it has caused a lot of the problems that we're experiencing today.
3: Justin, you bring a very interesting point that I found personally very revelational. In the midst of the crisis... Our understanding of this inequity was delayed and remains limited because many healthcare institutions, as well as state and the federal governments, they were slow to capture the demographic information on COVID-19 because the health equity data was not available. And one of the most crucial things is a data-driven approach that can be used to address this very racial disparity in the healthcare outcomes. And data does make a difference because unless you can measure something, how can you even think about solving that, right?
4: Yeah, and I I agree with you, but I think there is some sort of acknowledgement, especially by the current administration. And what I enjoyed the most about both interviews is that they both had some positive policy changes, and that's where we're going to see the difference.
1: And one example of that is the Health Equity Tracker Project that Daniel Dawes is leading, and they're starting to tackle the data issues surrounding the pandemic and health equity. And it does really start, though, with a commitment to saying, hey, we have to find the data in order to address the problems.
3: It's boils down to transparency, in my opinion. And it's really about transparency and having integrity that you will not use the data the way it should not be used. And again, building trust within the governments, within the health institutions, within public institutions. But one has to acknowledge that segregation by design is happening. And only then we can make an effort towards conquering this problem
1: we're in this position because we defunded public health. And yet we expect these heroes to perform more than a miracle in trying to get us out of this situation. But the concept of a community health workforce, I think, is a really strong one. Because if we're expecting marginalized communities to strictly sign up online, and that's the only way that they're going to get vaccinated, we're missing the point that these digital divides are going to continue to create problems. So Community health workforces, whether it's through the HEROES Act or whether it's through Biden's new executive orders around improving public health infrastructure, is really exciting to think about.
4: Yeah, and also it conveys the seriousness and it's less remote. When you tell someone you have to log into a website and, you know, I'm sending my information over the airwaves, I don't know where it's going to whom, but if there's an actual human knocking at my door, speaking to me directly, then I'm more inclined to cooperate. It conveys a seriousness, but also the human interest, you know, whoever is in that community is going to feel looked after and cared for as opposed to the desensitized way of you're on your own, you go and, you know, register. And if you don't, then good luck. If you don't have a computer or if you don't have access to the internet, I guess, you know,
3: you just drew the short stick there. I love your comment here, Katrina. That reminds me of one of the conversations that I've had long back with a last mile healthcare worker. And he told me that, you know, sometimes we just talk about technology all the time, solving these issues. There are places and there are people for them, even pen and paper is technology. And humans are capable of using that and bringing that access we are trying to achieve through technology. So if there is a hybrid solution that we can come up with, that's what is going to solve the problem in a sustainable way.
1: All right, let's dive into these powerful conversations and hear from two of the most knowledgeable experts in this field.
4: Well, hello, Dr. Brown. It's a pleasure to meet you. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write The Black Butterfly?
0: Well, I was born in well Memphis, Tennessee. We lived in West Memphis, Arkansas. Left there, my family, we went to the Houston area. Went to Morehouse after graduating in 97 and majored in African-American studies. And across the street from Morehouse was a public housing development called Harris Homes. And they were in the third phase of uprooting people as a part of Clinton's Hope Six Project, which involved demolishing about a quarter million public housing units. And so I think it was there that I really sort of began to question policies of displacement and how and why African-Americans are being uprooted. And I wanted to know more about how government played a role in that. So my master's degree was in public administration at the University of Houston, where I picked up that thread to try to understand a little bit more about community development. And then I got interested in the health angle of community development. So went to the University of Tennessee Health Science Center where I obtained my doctorate in health outcomes and policy research. After finishing it led me to Morgan State University in Baltimore, where I worked on my postdoctoral fellowship, became an associate professor, my research, kept looking at, you know, how neighborhoods impact health outcomes. And that whole through line really led me to this book.
4: Right. And was the initial interest to satisfy personal curiosities? Or did you already have a plan in mind that this is something that you're going to work on and educate the public as you are doing right now?
0: I mean, I think it more or less developed organically. I don't think I had a master plan in mind, but I think you can see how one interest, one degree kind of led to the other. You know, I grew up, well, my hometown, West Memphis, Arkansas is this small, it's like 30,000 folks and the county is rural. Arkansas is a very rural state. And so it's just thinking about the impact of space on people's health and the impact of how space is racialized and how that impacts people's health was something that I think was there from the beginning, just in terms of always being interested in, like, urban policies, what makes a space, you know, be the way that it is now. And so with all of the cities that I lived in, you're talking about Baltimore, Memphis, or West Memphis, Arkansas, Atlanta, Georgia, Houston, Texas. And so it's just, you know, really sort of getting a good sense of how these different cities meant you have different outcomes. And then if you lived in different neighborhoods in those cities, you had different health outcomes you know, my background and my intellectual interests led me to this work.
4: And through your work, how do you see the legacy of racist policies in cities throughout the nation as a contributing factor to the disparities of experience throughout the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Well, I mean, the biggest contribution of urban policy to the current pandemic is the municipalization of racial segregation. So the ways by which racial segregation was shaped in urban areas. Baltimore Mayor John Barry Mahull, he passed the first residential racial zoning law in American history on December nineteenth, 1910. And so you have cities in the early 1900s, they were still building out their sewer systems. They were still building water filtration to clean water. They were still connecting water lines. Many homes, they didn't have plumbing. They didn't have clean water. They didn't have sewer systems, which meant that they were breeding grounds for infectious diseases like influenza or like tuberculosis, especially yellow fever, cholera. So those are diseases that were high at the time, but the way in which municipalities were allocating resources to white neighborhoods and white blocks and not allocating those to black neighborhoods or black blocks at the time That had a tremendous impact on the infectious epidemics then, and then you go further in time to where we are today, it has a big impact on the COVID pandemic now.
4: Do you think these allocations were in sorts intentionally depriving the minority communities or was it maybe disproportionately done?
0: Well, it was absolutely intentional. Number one, race was the reason. Like in Baltimore, you saw in the Baltimore Sun, I talk about in my book, how the Sun kept putting this headline out in their articles, Negro invasion. There's a Negro invasion, home buying while Black, Black people are coming. And so they weaponized, they used propaganda to cause white Baltimoreans to engage in a counteroffensive against Black home buyers. And you see public health actually being used as a rationale for racial segregation. The fact that Black people had a higher rate of tuberculosis and other diseases, that was a reason to then segregate them. In effect, it was a neighborhood quarantine. So you see in the Baltimore Sun again and other newspapers how the discourse of data and the way in which Black people were stigmatized, and demonized based on these health disparities. Given the intentionality that you see, both with newspaper headlines, with the implication of public health, with other media that were really spreading about the time, like The Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith, which glorifies the Ku Klux Klan, you can see how race is intentionally being used as a rationale to effectuate Racial segregation. And then if you want to look at Jessica Trounstein's book, Segregation by Design, she shows empirically that the more racial segregation that you see in a city, the less public resources, the fewer public goods are being allocated per capita in those cities and definitely in those cities to black neighborhoods.
4: What would you say has been the most profound impact of these type of policies on health vectors during this pandemic?
0: First, we had the introduction of the virus. So you had California, I believe Seattle, if I'm not mistaken, cruise ships. They sort of brought the virus to the nation. But after the virus arrived, then it hit hypersegregated cities the hardest. New York is a Category 4 hypersegregated city. And I use category like a hurricane as an analogy. Detroit was hit hard, Chicago was hit hard. Those two are category five hypersegregated cities. That's the highest form of racial segregation that we have. And so these cities were hit really, really hard early on, if you recall, March and April of last year, hypersegregated cities were the first hit. So the legacy of racial segregation as it relates to the COVID pandemic is that hypersegregated cities served as ground zero in terms of the mass spread of COVID-19 in America. If we didn't have American apartheid, if we didn't have racial segregation to that degree, it would have made it much harder for COVID to really pick up and spread in a mass kind of way.
4: What else have you seen as far as the tangential consequence of lockdowns? Depleted economies, for example, you mentioned the cities, Chicago and New York, the lower opportunity streams on these communities of colors throughout this crisis.
0: There should have been universal basic income. There should have been a massive infusion of resources from the federal government that would actually have allowed people to stay home then in a concentrated way. Instead, we had a president at the time that was talking about reopening by Easter and that the deaths would be under 100,000 or under 60,000 at first. And here we are now approaching 500,000. We didn't lock down long enough. I argue that capitalism was gonna actually work against our ability to fight this virus. We needed to develop a strong response that was gonna help renters, help 40 million people that were thrown into unemployment initially, we need to have a strong response to effectuate the type of lockdown that was needed, and we did not do it. So that is what has set up the tangential impacts. We did a half-hearted lockdown, and we haven't really made any sort of strong effort around economic recovery. We had a lot of big businesses bailed out, but in terms of regular people, they got that one $2,000 infusion, I believe, back in the summer of last year, and that just wasn't enough. And so we're actually, I think, getting ready to see much more economic impacts that are going to be destructive in so many lives for a long period of time because we did not arrest our instincts to be this capitalist country at the outset. And so we're going to deal with the issues on the back end.
4: With the new administration, what are your thoughts on, you know, the direction that we're taking now? Do you feel that there are appropriate measures being taken?
0: Well, I mean, certainly the new administration is, you know, a breath of fresh air. You know, they're just getting their feet on the ground. But I think there has to be a lot more. Again, I think they're talking about maybe fourteen hundred or adding fourteen hundred to the six hundred in terms of the next COVID stimulus package for people. That's not universal basic income. Universal basic income is two thousand a month. So I'm talking about universal basic income to actually secure people's financial needs. And then, even though there is a rental moratorium. I believe that President Biden is trying to extend now past the March deadline. You know, I think we need to go a lot further because not all states are honoring that rental eviction. Their courts are not honoring it. So we need to really have a a strong nationwide, you can't get out of it strategy that allows people to stay where they are, not be put out of their homes. I think you got to put things in place to really stabilize housing and stabilize people's income so that, You don't have, I think, the wave of desperation that's going to come after that moratorium is lifted because the rent is going to be due and you're going to have an eviction crisis. And then if everybody isn't vaccinated, at that point, you're going to see a spike in COVID. So all of this has to work together. Otherwise, we're never going to get this virus under control.
4: Right. And and you speak of desperation. Do you feel that some of the communities of colors are in essence feeling desperate for the help that they should have gotten or the help that they should be getting. And how do they take steps to get that help?
0: I think there is desperation, but in many ways, communities of color are really masters of resilience. And so you may not see it. And the fact that people are dealing with deaths and contracting COVID. I know my family I've had over 10 members in southern states, you know, contract the virus, including my two grandparents. So it's hard to be engaged, I think, on the policy front side of it while you're dealing with folks that are in the hospital, dealing with folks in your family that are, you know, passing away, whether it's due to the disease or in the aftermath of it. So we're trucking along in terms of the room and the space to deal with the policy front. I don't know that the advocacy is as much there as it should be. But, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic, when you're at the bottom of the social hierarchy, you know, that's going to be tough to do. Now, at the same time, there was the action that was taken on Election Day in 2020. So you did see black voters in cities like Atlanta, Philadelphia, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Detroit come out and support a new administration, in part because they wanted a better COVID response. You know, you saw Latino voters in Nevada and Arizona, Native American voters in Apache County and Navajo County in Arizona helped put President Biden over the top. So there was, maybe to even counteract my own point, there was that movement to actually say, hey, we want a different president, in part because we want a better COVID response. There was that policy push. I want to make sure I highlight that.
4: Yeah, it's that resiliency on top of their, their own survival instincts. Yes. How do you see the terrain ahead for vaccine distribution, contact tracing, and other interventions? And I know this is kind of broad, but, you know, how do we build trust with our communities of color? How do we establish fairness in the distribution of the vaccines? Tell me your thoughts on those.
0: Well, what I'm seeing right now is a failure to engage in vaccine administration equitably. You have white people coming in from other neighborhoods into Black and brown neighborhoods to get vaccinated before the Black and brown people that live in those neighborhoods. <laughs> that story you're seeing in Detroit. In Philadelphia, they gave a 22-year-old white gentleman, they gave him a contract to deal with COVID, and they skipped over the Black doctors who have their own organization, have built trust. And that should have gotten a contract like that. So you're seeing in the administration of the vaccine, this inequity in terms of both where it's being distributed. If you look in the state of Maryland, demographically whiter counties are getting more vaccines per capita than demographically Blacker counties. Then you have the fact that the primary mode of vaccine administration is to have people sign up online then those people living in those red line, marginalized subprime communities that are dealing with digital divides, they're gonna be left out. So I foresee the continuation of what we're seeing now, vaccine apartheid, unless we actually engage in a strategy that I think we should do, which is I believe the HEROES Act from last year should be passed, the creation of a national community health worker workforce. I would hire 100,000 community health workers and I would have my community health workers working with nurses and physicians, medical professionals, going out to communities, not waiting until people come into the hospital, come into the vaccine site, come into you know the stadium where you have it set up or a drive through when everybody don't have a car. You need a group of folk that's gonna go out and I don't care if they have to go door to door, You should have people going out to make sure the vaccine is administered in those communities that are really struggling, making sure they have the access they need and build trust along the way. Because a lot of people, they may say no right now, but that no could be a wait and see. I'm going to wait and see, but maybe in three months I might say yes. So that's another reason you need the community health workers to be out communicating, out discussing, showing their face, having conversations that's the kind of interaction, that relationship building that's going to be needed. And you need people to do that, not technology, not the internet. The way we're doing it now is not going to cut it.
4: Yeah, I understand that. In our previous episode, we were talking to Dr. Yasmin, and she was explaining how there needs to be some level of atonement and acknowledgement of wrongs from the past in order to build that trust, as you mentioned. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about, you kind of touched on it a little, but you've had family who've been hospitalized because of COVID-19. First of all, has everyone recovered?
0: To my knowledge, yes, everyone has recovered. Like I said, my grandmother passed several months later, and I understand it was from heart failure, not COVID.
4: Sorry for your loss.
0: Absolutely. I celebrate her life, and even though she recovered and died later, you know, COVID still has impacts people in their cardiovascular system and many systems, even the neurological system. My grandfather, when he was hospitalized, he didn't remember who his wife was, for instance, and later regained his memory. So we're very thankful for that.
4: We've heard that you've described the medical system as raggedy throughout your experience. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, the home health care workers, you have to call in, in Arkansas. I had to call to you know, arrange that and make sure that took place. You know, there's also the case where in those smaller rural counties, like Lee County, Arkansas, doesn't have a hospital. The hospital in Crittenden County, where my grandparents lived, I think had six beds for ICU cases. So these are rural counties that, you know, if you get 10 cases, that's a spike that a lot of counties cannot handle if they don't have that rural health infrastructure. And this is America, the wealthiest country on earth, and we can't have healthcare infrastructure for our people? That's why I called it raggedy. It's a shame and it's a hot mess trying to compensate as an individual for these systemic failings and lack of funding. You know, there's been the discussion, the protests over defunding the police, and what i want to point out to a lot of people is that we've been defunding public health for decades. And that is why we are in a situation now where we're relying on private corporations like a Walgreens and a CVS to administer vaccines. Why do you have to rely on them if you have a good public health system? Because we don't. And not because it's not good, as in the people aren't trying hard, is that we deeply underfunded. We defund public health in this nation, You know, if you just dropped in from another planet, if you looked at COVID data, you would say, well, America is a developing country. There's no way it could be the most advanced, wealthiest country on Earth. But in fact, it is.
4: Based on your background and everything that you've described that you've done, you're an expert. So what would your top list for policy initiatives be at addressing the issues and the disparities that we've seen so far?
0: Okay, well, for COVID, I'm looking at spatial equity. Testing early on and the vaccine administration now, if your main locations are in wealthier, whiter communities, that's not spatial equity. And racial equity, you can't have racial equity without spatial equity because America is so segregated. So where are your testing sites? Where are your vaccine administration sites? If they're not in red line, subprime, low-income communities, you've already failed Spatial equity in the response, like I said earlier, number two, community health workers, community health workers, community health workers. Got to have an outreach component, not just a come see us component. And then number three is that Internet can't be your only strategy. In fact, I'm not sure it should be much of a strategy at all, given the way we've seen people game the system. People coming from wealthier, whiter communities colonizing the vaccine supply, gentrifying vaccine administration. Those are the top three things that I would look at, shifting from internet to person-based through community health workers and with a spatial equity approach. Those would be my top three for COVID. Overall, you know, health equity is important, but alongside health equity, we have to have social solidarity. And what is that? Social solidarity is realizing that this whole country is in this mess together even though the deaths are disproportionate among communities of color, you still have a huge percentage of white people dying from this. And so the thing is, we're all in this. So whatever good programs and strategies that we need, universal basic income, this community health worker core that I'm talking about, having spatial equity in the response, these things are going to be helpful to everybody. So so there just has to be like a strong mutual aid, outreach, you know, working to get folks vaccinated and in a holistic way that when you're dealing with people on the COVID front, you're also checking in to make sure that their other needs are being met. You know, how do we set up a strategy where everyone's going to be having their needs met holistically?
4: Absolutely. Dr. Brown, it certainly has been an enlightening conversation to speak with you and hear about the work that you've done and how you're shedding much light to a lot of important areas and key issues. Do you have any final thoughts to share with our listeners?
0: The biggest thing is, you know, our issues as a nation right now are really rooted in American apartheid. And American apartheid is a system that was set up via racial segregation, colonization, uprooting communities, particularly Native American, Latino, African American communities. So we have to have Equity. We have to center equity. But at the same time, we need to also uplift social solidarity. The fact that we are all in this together, white people are dying too. We want to make sure that every community has what it needs. And if some communities need more, we need to allocate more to those communities. So COVID then can be a turning point for America where we recognize what is really bedeviling us, what is really destroying so many lives in this country, because even when you get rid of COVID, you're still gonna have those other epidemics. You're still gonna have deep poverty. You're still gonna have the four regions in our country that are really struggling, the Southern Black Belt. You're still gonna have Appalachia struggling. You're still gonna have Native American tribal lands and the U.S.-Mexico border counties. So these are all racial geographies where we have tremendous inequities. And you realize that Appalachia means a lot of poor white people are in that mix. And so that's what we're saying. We're saying everybody, everybody needs to be on board if we're going to make this country the country that it should be instead of lagging behind in so many indicators.
4: Very well said. A great summary. I love what you said about social solidarity. I think that that probably should be one of those buzzwords out there that we should all be adopting and talking about. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: What an honest and insightful conversation with Dr. Brown. And for anyone who needs to understand why communities of color in this country continue to struggle for access to some of the most basic health needs. Health needs that so many of us take for granted. I encourage you to order his book, The Black Butterfly, now. Coming up, we'll hear from Dr. Brian Smedley, another torchbearer and lifelong advocate for health equity.
3: Hi, Brian. It's a pleasure to have you on our show today and thanks for making the time. So, Brian, you are the co-founder and executive director of National Collaborative for Health Equity, a project that connects research, policy analysis and communications with on-the-ground activism to advance health equity. And you have been carrying the torch for actually several years now on undoing the health consequences of racism. Tell me something more about your personal motivation to start this health equity initiative in general, and also what got you working on these topics? What's your personal story?
2: Well, first, thank you so much for having me. You know, health equity is something that we should all be concerned about, but I'm personally very deeply invested in it. I come from a line of people who've committed themselves to racial justice work. My mother is the late anthropologist, Dr. Audrey Smedley, who wrote uh, quite a bit about the concept of race and how it originated Here in North America, essentially to subjugate and exploit, of course, indigenous populations and then enslaved Africans and so forth. So that's really the roots of today's health inequities. And given my mother's scholarship, given the kinds of things that I've observed in my lifetime— such as being born in Detroit in the 1960s, a city that was going through considerable demographic change when I was a little boy. We moved to a neighborhood on the west side of Detroit that was somewhat integrated. But like a lot of other cities in the United States, as African Americans began moving into the neighborhood, white people began to leave in significant numbers to the suburbs. And that's the roots of modern day racial segregation, which I have focused a lot of my work on because it's actually at the root of uh, many of the health inequities that we see, particularly those inequities between African-Americans and whites. Most people don't recognize the role of residential segregation as being foundational to health inequities. And moreover, most Americans don't recognize the role of government in actively segregating and separating different racial and ethnic groups and perpetuating that segregation up until 1964, when those practices were finally outlawed. So really, my work is about addressing that lasting legacy of a structural form of racism, which is residential segregation and the role of government and many other actors in creating and perpetuating that segregation.
3: Right. I mean, it takes me to one of the common topics we discussed with Dr. Brown on our podcast as well. The impact of hospice that is racialized is impacting people's health. And there's also, I think, a book which is segregated by design that really examines exactly the topics that you're kind of talking about and touching on. You're also the chief of psychology in the public interest with American Psychological Association and you're leading APA's efforts to apply the science and practice of psychology to fundamental problems of human welfare and social justice. What would you like to touch upon these topics being kind of used in terms of the context of the pandemic right now, you know, in the last year and how they may be different than what it used to be in the past, in terms of how you've been doing your own work and the challenges around that?
2: Well, we're certainly in, in our lifetimes, unprecedented times with the pandemic. Uh, we've seen that the pandemic has upended so many aspects of life and tragically has cut many lives short. The pandemic really just reflects existing inequity. Those populations that have been marginalized politically, socially, economically, typically are most vulnerable. To infection, they have higher mortality rates. So, here in the US context, African Americans, Latinx populations, American Indian populations, and many others have been hit particularly hard by the pandemic. So our effort at the American Psychological Association and other groups working in the racial equity and health equity space is to simply uplift this inequity. It's my contention that we will not get out of this pandemic unless we center and prioritize equity concerns. And the reason for this is pretty simple: you can't leave any community behind and expect that we're all going to be okay and healthy, and that we're going to ultimately defeat the virus if we. We leave behind those folks who are frontline essential workers, folks who are working in nursing homes and other settings who are disproportionately themselves, black and brown immigrant folks, if we leave these communities vulnerable, then we will all ultimately vulnerable. So we need to address the needs of those most marginalized and those most at risk and to prioritize how we go about reducing risk. So we know, for example, that we all have to practice good public health practice, wearing masks, washing hands, physically distancing. But in some cases in communities of color, for example, those are very difficult to do, particularly if you have overcrowded housing or people working in settings where it's difficult to physically distance we have to prioritize the concerns of those communities if we're going to ensure that none of us are at disproportionate risk and that we can all ultimately come out of the virus healthier and stronger
3: right i mean the topics you touch upon are very valid and actually quite in focus in news these days as well and and i believe one of the missions of you know your health equity collaborative is to set up and promote health equity by harnessing data And I just want to bring that aspect of data here. And uh, I know I read a federal study that found that race and ethnicity data is missing for nearly half of coronavirus vaccine recipients. And this lack of data is leading to an inequitable response to the pandemic, which is, of course, you know, continuing to unduly burden communities of color as well. In fact, the Biden administration created COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force has also an ambitious promise there of an expansion of equity data. collection. So first of all, your thoughts on that. And secondly, do you see any solutions to such challenges in terms of equity data collection, which has a major role to play here?
2: Yes, that's a wonderful question. Most folks would wonder, well, why data collection doesn't sound very sexy? How does that help solve (laughs) this problem of this virus? Epidemiology 101 tells us that we need to collect data, very thorough and comprehensive data, to understand where the virus is spreading, which communities are getting hardest hit. And unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, we had a very weak and ineffective federal response. It left it to many of the states to be able to forge strategies going forward, particularly with respect to data collection. We have 50 plus different approaches to data collection being used among the states. But we need comprehensive and complete data collection on things like demographic information. We need to know who's testing positive by race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status data, such as income or education, would be helpful. Where do people live? Place is obviously critically important to understand the distribution and spread of the virus. Are folks with disabilities disproportionately affected? Are people who are gender or sexual minorities disproportionately affected? We simply don't have the data, but we need to know this information so that we can target strategies to help communities to reduce their risks. We need data on who is getting tested, who's testing positive, who's getting hospitalized if necessary, and what kinds of treatments might they be receiving. We need data on vaccines. We know that Vaccine acceptance, there's quite a bit of variation across different communities, and there's a long history. That's a whole nother story. But unless we have the data to understand who's getting vaccinated, again, it makes our public health response ineffectual. It makes it difficult for us to target strategies to ensure that we're getting vaccines, for example, where they're desperately needed. Again, this is something that's going to ultimately be of concern for all of us if we want to contain the spread and ultimately defeat the virus.
3: Right. I mean, all of that makes complete sense in order to be able to understand the population, to be able to address the solutions towards it, right? To that extent, would you have any examples or maybe initiatives or something that is in the planning where you could talk about data-driven innovations in this health equity space?
2: To understand how communities are responding to vaccine availability, we need data. We need to be able to understand new applications such as artificial intelligence. How does that help target vaccine distribution where it's needed, for example? In some cases, artificial intelligence may be not helpful, particularly in the racial ethnic context, as there's some data to indicate that artificial intelligence may be operating differently on the basis of race, ethnicity in the U.S. We need to be very clear about how we can best harness technology and where there may be risks with new technologies such as AI.
3: Other than the commonly talked about issues like lacking data and infrastructure because of the inequities in the system, what fragilities have highlighted or exposed most within these marginalized community ecosystems during the pandemic? In specific, how do they relate to psychological well-being of people?
2: We've seen that the pandemic has exposed so many inequities and so many risks, but the psychological risks are profound. We have a combination of economic anxiety, given the economic disruption of the pandemic. We have fear of infection or transmission of the virus to one's loved ones or family members or others in the community. And then we have had accompanied with the pandemic a resurgence of intolerance and expressions of hate. The Asian American community here in the U.S., for example, has been disproportionately targeted and victimized with assaults, both verbal and physical, in both virtual and physical spaces. Clearly, we are in a very stressful time. At the APA, we've been predicting a mental health tsunami emerging as a result of the pandemic and the associated stresses. And what it highlights for us is the need to rebuild the mental health infrastructure. Sadly, over a number of decades, we have disinvested in the public health infrastructure and mental health infrastructure here in the US. And so we need to rebuild that because clearly the mental health consequences that we're experiencing right now are deep and profound and can have significant implications for the overall health status of populations, for our ability to recover from the economic downturn, and just to be resilient to have our communities be able to draw upon sources of strength and resiliency to help them emerge from the pandemic stronger. So the mental health consequences have been significant and we are desperately in need of ways to improve our ability to provide services. You asked about innovation and in technology earlier. One such innovation is the increase in telehealth and telemental health here in the U.S. whereby People who are seeking psychotherapy, for example, can find a provider and can interact either over a video chat or telephone line. And this significantly reduces geographic barriers to accessing therapeutic services. But it also, from an equity standpoint, reduces many cultural and linguistic barriers. So if a person is seeking, for example, Spanish language mental health services, but lives in a community where no such providers are available, that person can simply look across the state where they live in and attempt to access services from qualified providers. So it opens up new opportunities for seeking assistance. And from an equity standpoint, that kind of innovation is critically important.
3: Yeah, you bring in a lot of interesting topics here, but one of the things which often strikes me is U.S. is facing public health crisis on a level not experienced for more than 100 years now, right? It should be reasonable to expect that all citizens can rely on their government and health institutions to protect them. But for many Black Americans and communities of color, trust in the government does not come easily. You kind of touched upon it as well, right? Right. What would you say is the reason for that?
2: You know, we have a long history and a sad history here in the U.S. of abuse. At the hands of the scientific and medical establishment, we've seen that African Americans have been abused in public health research, such as in the infamous Tuskegee experiments, where African American males who had contracted syphilis were allowed to go untreated so that researchers could understand the long-term effects of syphilis clearly unethical and something that should never have happened and should not happen today. So you have that history, plus you have the fact that there are so many structural inequities. The way that healthcare resources are distributed here in the U.S. is deeply inequitable. Often those communities that are sickest and in greatest need of access to healthcare services and culturally appropriate services in their communities simply don't have that access. Adding on top of that, the fact that the United States remains a nation that is focused on market-based healthcare delivery—that means we have no uniform national strategy for providing health insurance coverage. We have no uniform national strategy for looking at where we need to have our doctors, nurses, clinics, hospitals, etc. So we, in fact, have multiple systems, many of which merely replicate the inequities that already exist. So there are many lessons to be learned about the proper role of government in ensuring that we all have a basic level of protection. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that despite the tragedy of the pandemic, that we will learn those lessons, that there is a role for government to ensure a basic level of access to health care and basic level of public health services. And many other countries, of course, ensure that all populations have at least some minimal level of access to care.
3: Right. I mean, it's a very, very relevant point that you talk about the role of government and how they can make it more accessible in the healthcare. But this brings me to another very important point. The fact that marginalized communities and the communities of color are more than ever now aware of these disparities in the healthcare system. And now they more than ever are aware that they receive lower quality of care, right? And during this pandemic, we often heard voices coming out and speaking about the topic. So this is not only the mistrust part, but it's also a level of awareness and retaliation at times even, right? So is there a way we can manage and handle this mistrust, so to say, fear among these communities through better engagement, better communication? And here I would in particularly like you to lean into your expertise in psychology and behavioral science as to how to take corrective measures here.
2: Sure. To your point, we know that there are steps that we can take to ensure that people have reliable, trustworthy information about the vaccine. So, for example, given the high levels of mistrust in the African-American community of the medical establishment and many other communities as well, we know that there are some things that we can do. First, begin to work with trusted community leaders and advisors, folks who are working at the grassroots level, be they working in community-based organizations, nonprofit organizations, civic organizations, faith institutions, and many others, working with our trusted leaders to provide accurate information is critically important. We also need to ensure that we're working closely with community groups to understand what are the concerns that communities may have about accessing the vaccine. We need to better understand how do we ensure that we're meeting other needs that communities may have. It's not just related to vaccines. We need to ensure, as I mentioned earlier, that we're all adopting good public health behaviors. And so all of this is tied together in terms of understanding trust, not just in government, but in all of our civic institutions. So that's why it's important to begin to work with those trusted leaders that are already present in communities and are already drawing upon sources of strength and resiliency that already exist in these communities. It's important to note that even though we're talking about communities that are in many cases politically, economically, and socially marginalized, these communities have tremendous sources of strength and resiliency that we need to draw upon in times of crisis like this.
3: As very often it's said that, you know, you often listen to the voices of your own communities and you have to tap into that rather than coming it as top down. And personally, I work a lot in human centered design. And I also believe that you have to also tap into the moral intuition and values of these communities to be able to communicate with them in what resonates with them best, right? Let's think about COVID as a trigger, you know, right now. I mean, since march last year a few things changed the nature of work changed economics changed we know that people of color and marginalized people were you know disproportionately impacted that's a known fact now partially because they were the essential workforce during the pandemic and they were vulnerable to this exposure. Another thing that changed was the nature of education. We moved from in-person to remote learning and then the differential access to broadband and strong technology, you know, that enabled people to connect and learn differently where marginalized populations again got left behind, right? Now, this is systemic and I am just trying to bring that to the health equity perspective here in the context of vaccine distribution. We see this trickle down in the way the vaccine distribution is being done at this point in time where there is a digital divide. Now, where does the entire health equity initiative can play a role here in terms of reaching the people where they are who have very limited access to technology, for instance? Do you have any solutions there?
2: This is such an excellent question because you're tying together, again, many of the pre-existing inequities and disparities in terms of access to broadband internet, for example. These are all issues that were critically important before the pandemic, and we're seeing how much worse it's gotten. You mentioned uh, things like children learning remotely. There's some evidence that kids are falling behind. And again, this disproportionately falls on the backs of children of color. When we're talking about health, generally, the best Predictor of your health status as an individual is your educational attainment, your educational level. And so we have left these children behind who are most vulnerable at this time and who experience many challenges to remote learning. In some cases, we have challenges with family care and child care that may interfere with children's learning, inequitable access to broadband, as you mentioned. And then the challenges of children not having adequate nutrition. In many cases, we have children receiving breakfast, lunch at reduced or low cost or no cost. So these are all deeply tied together. And you've asked about solutions. There are some really interesting innovations happening in terms of remotely bringing broadband to those communities that lack that access, ensuring that children can go to centers in communities, for example, where they can much more easily access broadband and at the same time get some of the nutritional and social services that they might need. So even though in some cases schools are not open or are on a hybrid schedule, or in other cases, schools are just now returning to in-person learning, we have to ensure that we're addressing the gaps that have occurred in the time where students have been out of school. So ensuring that there are opportunities for remediation and helping children to get caught back up, all of these things pose tremendous risk for these children individually in terms of their opportunities in life and their health outcomes broadly, but it also affects all of us as a society, as a community, because again, to the extent that we leave these kids behind, it is to the detriment of the entire society.
3: Tell me one thing, how could you, or how we as a system, rethink race or racism in the context of health equity and in particular use of psychology to make a positive impact on these critical societal issues?
2: First, we need to acknowledge the global presence of the belief in human hierarchy, a false notion that assigns value to some and denies value and opportunity for others. And here in the US context, of course, European descendants are considered to have uh, value. The reality is that as a society, we allocate much more in the way of societal opportunities to children of European descent while systematically posing barriers to opportunity for kids of color. Psychologists have been studying this phenomenon for many years. And of course, psychologists have pioneered the notion of implicit bias. The fact that people, even those with egalitarian views and who are deeply anti-racist, may harbor biases that they're not consciously aware of, that are automatically activated when we're confronted with difference, whether it's difference on the basis of skin color, gender, language, or any number of other factors. So psychologists have tried to help the general public to understand how these processes operate and to help us understand that race is in fact a social construct, but racism is very real because of the tendency for humans to believe in forms of hierarchy. These, of course, are ideologically driven. No child comes into the world believing that one group is superior to another, but rather how we allocate societal resources, the cultural narratives that we hold, the kind of world that we create for kids of color is often very different for white kids, particularly here in the United States. And these children see that. They understand who is valued and who's not when they see those kinds of conditions. So we need to do much more to help people to understand the fallacy of race. There is no biologic or genetic underpinning to the notion of race. These so-called races that we have identified are purely social myth but rather what we have done is to create a society where people are valued differently on the basis of things like skin color, hair texture, et cetera. Children see that. It's reflected in the inequities that we see across a range of different outcomes. And it's my firm belief that we are making progress toward helping people in this society understand the fallacy of race, but the reality of racism, and importantly, how destructive racism is for all of us. I believe if we keep pushing to raise this level of awareness, ultimately, this will help us to lay a foundation to create a more egalitarian society as we have stated that is our goal.
3: So true, Brian. I mean, I agree with every word you said right now, because it's really the biases that we've kind of built in. And one is working on the systemic and the infrastructure part of it and the government role that is to be played here. But I think the other part is also really the biases that we have to fight from within. And in the context of all we've talked about today, does any you know initiative from government or local level, federal level, state level, or any other country in the world, you have witnessed where The government has risen to the recent challenges in a particularly productive way.
2: Well, we've certainly seen wide variation globally in how governments are responding. We've seen wide variation in the pandemic spread. We all can learn quite a bit from New Zealand, which has had great success in first getting the inhabitants of the country to cooperate, to work together, to do those public health behaviors that we know from science are important, wearing a mask, washing hands, physically distancing. And yet we still have resistance to that science in the United States. We have people who believe it's a matter of their personal freedom to not wear a mask. You know, that kind of stance, while it may be ideologically comforting for some, flies in the face of science. And so we have to come to a reckoning. We can either hold on to our ignorance and be willfully proud and demand that we have our so-called freedoms to behave as we wish, or we can recognize that our behavior affects others in our communities. So just as we have certain freedoms, we also have many responsibilities to understand how our behavior affects others in our community. Same issue with vaccines. The more people that we can get to accept the vaccine, the more progress we will make toward reducing the spread. But the big takeaway for me is that nations that cooperate together, that show a level of social cohesion and solidarity will do much better in stopping the spread of the virus than those communities characterized by deep division, such as here in the United States.
3: I mean, you touched on a very interesting topic here, and I'm forced to ask this question, which is around science, right? It's absolutely critical in the pandemic response that, you know, this push against science, anti-vaxxers movement, for instance, or also not people not wearing masks, or some even believing that COVID-19 doesn't even exist, right? So this scientific fact versus misinformation leading to apprehensions, What is the role of psychology here? And I mean, the psychological dimension of the pandemic.
2: You know, there are a number of psychologists who've studied public health communications. How do we ensure that our messages are being heard, accepted, and that we are conveying accurate information? Who needs to convey that message? There's quite a bit of science on this topic. And so we need to be prepared to deploy those lessons learned from that science. We know pandemics tend to elicit some of the worst aspects of our tendencies as human beings. Pandemics create anxiety. They tend to turn neighbor against neighbor. They tend to make us distrustful. And if we already had a level of distrust in our institutions, that tends to get worse during the pandemic. So understanding that, yes, we are going to have factions, we are going to have divisions, during a time of extreme anxiety, but understanding that there are ways that we can address that anxiety and come together. And again, understanding that our ability to cooperate, to work together toward our goals as communities, as a society is going to be far more constructive toward flattening the curve, as we say, than the divisions that we've seen. So this is often hard to convey and those sentiments that are solidly anti-science, as you've indicated, are difficult to change. But if we can help people to understand again our collective responsibility and what we need to do to protect each other, our families, our communities, most people would be motivated by that kind of information and would take the kinds of steps that are needed to ensure that we understand our responsibilities to each other.
3: Right, totally bang on. The strategic health communications is something that we need to invest in. Brian, there were amazing insights. We're very interested in humanizing our shared experiences and here beyond your academic work, how has the recent pandemic affected you, your family, your friendships, any stories there?
2: Sure. For my family, as with many other families, it is challenging, right? We are unable to travel. We're unable to see friends and family as we once did. But those are relatively minor concerns compared to what some other families have gone through. So many families have tragically lost loved ones or have had people get very sick in their families. I'm so fortunate that we've not had that experience in my family and my heart goes out to those who have had those kinds of tragic experiences. The best thing that we can do for each other is to understand that even though we must be physically distant, we need to be socially together. And thankfully, there are many, many ways to do that with technology today. We need to ensure that we are expressing care for each other. We need to ensure that we're communicating with each other, checking on what we might need. Again, even as we're physically distancing, we need to be socially showing solidarity.
3: Right, I love the message there, like we need to be socially together and that's what is important in these current times. Thanks, Brian, for your insights and for all the work you are doing that contributes to building the capacity for public health to advance equity. And I'm particularly a fan of one of your initiatives within your Health Equity Collaborative, which is the Culture of Health Leaders I mean, we need this foundational leadership development for people who want to advance health equity. and, And we need to prepare and inspire people to provide this transformative leadership to address health equity in these communities. So thank you. Thank you for doing all the work and thank you for speaking to us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Racism is a public health issue. It's been a humbling experience to talk about issues of racial segregation and health equity in America through Contact World Truth and Health. We can't hide from truth. We can't hide from these issues or pretend they don't exist. Black and brown people are disproportionately affected by disease because our system designed it that way. If I hear one more white person say, all lives matter, as if anyone said or suggested otherwise, I'm going to pop. While I'm embarrassed about some of our history, I'm equally passionate about doing my part and our part as a company with Contact World to fix a broken system. We have to improve health equity in this country. And most of what's broken comes down to racial injustice dating back more than 100 years. If you deny that, you are part of the problem. If you allow racism, even passive racism, to happen around you, you need to stand up to it and speak out against it. Being silent is being complicit. I'm proud to be part of this movement to reduce health disparities and eliminate structural racism in this country. Thank you for being a part of that, too. We'll see you next time on Contact World Truth and Health. We're going to talk about data genocide with a troublemaker who speaks on behalf of our American Indians and Alaska Natives. Listen to Contact World, the podcast, on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.